It's a brand new format. Again, as we take a look at the classic uh, Captain Marvel story, a.k.a. Shazam, Mr. Mind, and the Monster Society of Evil. Then some hot takes on Black Panther, The Complete Collection Volume 2, Batman Volume 8 Cold Days, and Pet Avengers Classic Straight Ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. Well, I'm shaking up the format again. I think trying to go long run through even two comics is a bit much, particularly when it comes to like uh, graphic novels. Um, and I also think that with the idea of this comic, of this podcast being the Classic Comics Podcast, we should put the focus on the classy and less on the ranty. So what I'm going to do is we're going to have a focus, a comic that I really enjoyed and will talk about as probably my main focus, at least that's the goal anyway. And then we'll have a series, you know, somewhere between two to four other uh, novels that we'll kind of just give a hot take on. Uh, not too long, maybe three or four minutes for each. So uh, the classy focus, um, or classy showcase, I guess, will be uh, Heroes of the Public Domain, uh, Mr. Mind, and the Monster Society, of evil. And of course, we're referring to the original, uh, Captain Marvel, aka Shazam, uh, story, uh, from 1943 to 45, published by Fawcett uh, Comics. It is a really famous story. Uh, it is referenced quite a bit in uh, DC continuity. Uh, you can see it in Bronze Age works. Uh, it's certainly quite an epic. Now, I do want to go ahead and address uh, some of the controversy around this particular storyline and also how it can be obtained. DC was actually going to do a hardback uh, reprint of the entire uh, story, but it ended up being uh, canceled. A lot of people raised concerns about the storyline uh, because of some of the racial uh, depictions in the story. Uh, and there are a couple uh, of uh, the problematic uh, types. Uh, there, this was written during World War II, and so there were a lot of uh, inappropriate uh, racial depictions of the Japanese in several parts of the story. The second is just some really unfortunate negative portrayals of uh, blacks that are stereotypical. Uh, you had one scene uh, with a uh, African tribe uh, who were cannibals doing that stereotypical thing. And then you had another character uh, named Steamboat who was this very caricatured uh, black character, both in speech and characteristics. 
And I can understand, uh, I, I definitely don't support that sort of portrayal. However, both sorts of portrayals are very common in Golden Age comics. It doesn't make it right, but it does make it the sort of thing that happened quite a bit. For example, Will Eisner, for whom the Eisner Awards are made. His spirit cartoons featured a very similarly stereotypical character. Now, you can argue that the character that Will Eisner uh, drew was maybe a little bit more intelligently written, but not a whole lot more. And you can see this, uh, both sort of things, in uh, uh, stuff that's been reprinted. For example, one of the Golden Age uh, volumes of Superman Sunday strips had strips with some very racially charged uh, portrayals of the Japanese. And when DC owned the rights to the spirit, they reprinted the spirit comics, including those with Ebony White. Now, for my part, uh, that is the right approach. Rather than not reprinting material or censoring material, it's best to just reprint it so that people can understand the history of their uh, favorite characters and also the history of the country and the type of stereotypes that people had to deal with and endure so we can understand what was wrong with the writer's worldview or the worldview of the time while still appreciating the art that was produced. That said, I do understand DC's decision not to reprint it. DC is not in the business of preserving history. Uh, it's not in the business of uh, preserving or passing down the stories of Golden Age heroes. It is in the business of making money. And in this case, the reason that they decided doing uh, the Monster Society of Evil made sense was because they are about to do the Shazam movie. And this would be a nice tie-in for them to pick up a few thousand extra dollars. However, even though the uh, racially troubling material in this book is not in most of the chapters of it, it could stir up controversy that could undermine the movie. And unlike Superman or even the spirit, uh, the fact is that DC has done a pretty poor job of uh, managing uh, Shazam uh, slash Captain Marvel uh, in the eyes of the public. He was one of the most popular superheroes of the 1940s, but a lot of stories on the Shazam movie indicated that this was a really obscure superhero who DC was making a movie about. So in other words, a lot of folks would not have heard anything about Shazam. And if uh, what they released this uh, book uh, with this strip in it, and that's all that people uh, know about the character, it could undermine the movie. So I understand the decision not to make it. The good news for comics fans is that the storyline has entered the public domain. And so there are actually a, a couple companies that you can buy bound uh, volumes of the story from uh, through Amazon. 
In addition, the entire storyline is available for free at uh, digitalcomicmuseum.com. The bad news is that existing copies are from uh, previous uh, scans, and they vary quite a bit in uh, quality. You're not going to get the type of quality you would get if a company owned by Warner Brothers had uh, remastered it. So that fun stuff out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about uh, the Monster Society of Evil. The story begins in Captain Marvel Adventures number 22 when Mr. Mine throws down a challenge to Captain Marvel, saying, I am Mr. Mine. Space is my home. I am the most evil being ever to live. And you, Captain Marvel, though you are Earth's mightiest mortal, I will crush you like an ant. <laughs> or laugh to that effect. And from there, we begin a 25-part adventure. Probably the most important thing to remember about the adventure, uh, getting into it, is actually the title page for the first part. You see the silhouette of kids in a theater, and they're looking at a movie screen, which says a thrilling new serial, The Monster Society of Evil, starring Captain Marvel, with uh, Billy Batson, uh, Savannah Ibach, Captain Nazi, Mr. Banjo, Nippo, uh, Captain uh, Princess Rajabuti, and others. Now, the idea of this story evokes the movie serials of the time. The difference is that it's telling a story uh, that uh, you couldn't tell in a movie serial of the day. Uh, movie serials were very cheap affairs, uh, particularly during the war. Uh, if you watch, say, the 1943 Batman serial, and you see just a few sets reused over and over again, or even the 1949 uh, Batman serials, where they're driving along desolate stretches of road, or ferrying back and forth between secret evil headquarters. This is intended to be a movie serial, but so much better, because you have different locations, you have different villains. It also does explain some of the faults that people have identified with the uh, serial. Uh, of course, serials have to end on cliffhangers. And most often the cliffhanger was the result of Billy Batson being caught while not turned into Captain Marvel and left in some deadly peril with his mouth gag because his enemies are aware that uh, he's Captain Marvel and that if they can prevent him from saying Shazam, then they can uh, do away with him. Now, I would point out three things. One, not every uh, cliffhanger is this, though certainly many of them are. There are actually several where the question at the end is whether Mr. Mind will survive, which is an unusual cliffhanger for this sort of serialized story. Secondly, serials often uh, in film had very repetitive uh, cliffhangers. Uh, generally, like in the Superman serials, it would be... Uh, you know, unless there was kryptonite, you could essentially have uh, kryptonite, 
Lois uh, gets himself gets herself in a jam, or Jimmy gets himself in a jam, and those were the three variations for the cliffhangers. So there's a lot of repetition in the serials. I'd also say it's one of those faults that a lot of comics uh, have. Um, you know, Wonder Woman is a key example because in Wonder Woman. Uh, her uh, weakness is if she gets tied up uh, by a man, uh, then she loses her strength. And so you have a lot of that in there. And so it's one of those annoying bugs in Golden Age comic terrors, but you kind of have to go with it based on the story. Um, well, the, the, the story itself really does start out with, uh, Captain Marvel going up against some of his old foes. Uh, he goes up against, uh, Captain Nazi, uh, he goes up against Ibak, he goes up against, uh, Savannah, uh, you know, in pretty, a uh, quick order. And he ends up going up into space to find Mr. Mine, doesn't find him, and then Mr. Mine comes back to Earth. And it's actually revealed in Part 7, because you just hear the voice of Mr. Mine. And when Captain Marvel is first up in space, he sees this worm, and he just thinks it's an annoyance. But then we learn in Part 7 of the serial that the worm is actually Mr. Mine. And from there, uh, you just have these continual uh, battles of, uh, of Captain Marvel chasing Mr. Mind around the world, thwarting his evil plan. Generally, uh, Captain Marvel uh, getting captured as Billy and then left in a tight spot. And you have all sorts of schemes, all sorts of locations. Uh, you have uh, Captain Marvel getting his very own punch Hitler in the face moment. And every Golden Age superhero should uh, get that. And you have so many different schemes. You have variations on plots. Uh, you have, uh, you know, just so much going on. I think Mr. Mind is a really interesting uh, character. Uh, you know, he's full of plans. And there's something, the way he's drawn is he is so evil, but he's also so cute at the same time, particularly when he's not actively trying to look evil. And then he can look a little menacing. Even when he's in these various, you know, uh, fascist military uniforms, he still manages to look like this really cute character, uh, which is weird. Uh, you have missiles uh, being fired at the Earth, uh, and Captain Marvel has to figure out how to stop them. You have one chapter where Cap where Mr. Mind suffers a head injury, and he turns uh, good and helps out Captain Marvel for a time before returning to evil. Uh, before the end of the story, you have him starting a school for crime, and you have just so much happening. Uh, like I said, it's a little episodic. Some of them are, um, you know, you could say are, are prop. You could probably cut a chapter or two, but it's impressive how they managed to keep this uh, going as long as it did. And one thing also I do kind of like is uh, the uh, ending of it. And I'll go ahead and give spoilers for the ending. And it actually ends with Mr. Mine uh, 
uh, after having been captured by Captain Marvel, put on trial and executed. And that is such a rare thing for, like, a, a major supervillain in the Golden Age. You know, if you read Batman stories of the time, you constantly have uh, this, uh, you know, supervillain fell off something, he couldn't possibly survive, but he's not actually declared dead. Uh, and here you have this situation where Mr. Mind is captured, he's tried according to due process, and then he's executed. And for what it's worth, uh, this was a comic death, uh, that actually stuck. Uh, you know, uh, most of the time, like in the, uh, Batman, uh, comics, when a character like, uh, the Joker was presumed to have died. They just bring him back because they're like, we can't keep him dead. He is, you know, so valuable to us as a character alive. Uh, there's no uh, attempt during Fawcett's run to resurrect Mr. Mind. Now, uh, Fawcett only had a few years left as a comic uh, book company, uh, you know, less than a decade, but still... You know, it was impressive for the time that the character did not get brought back. He played out over this, you know, 25-part story. Overall, this is a classic. As I said, there are some uh, racial elements to be aware of in the book, but I think those are relatively a minor part of the overall narrative. This is a landmark uh, comic story, uh, which I think has a lot of fun elements in it. And it's definitely worth a read. All right, well, uh, that is our classy showcase. We turn now to uh, some of the other comics I've been reading. And we've got uh, one semi-classy and one not classy. And I want to talk about the Black Panther, the complete collection uh, volume 2, uh, collecting a Christopher Priest uh, run on the series, and I actually continued to uh, enjoy it. Uh, there are some pretty complex uh, political plots, uh, particularly as T'Challa tries to, uh, uh, tries to frustrate Eric Killmonger's uh, plans for taking over the country. And uh, it does end up in a duel uh, between Killmonger and T'Challa. And it's interesting uh, that Killmonger wins, but he wins uh, leadership of the clan, uh, Panther clan and the title of Black Panther. Uh, but he does not actually ascend to the throne, which is a big difference from the movie. And it creates a situation where he is king, but not Black Panther. Uh, of course, Killmonger's uh, run as Black Panther ends. I'm not entirely satisfied with how it ends. I think it was just kind of quick uh, to keep up with some events. Uh, but you also get some really other uh, complex political uh, plots where you, you get the sense that T'Challa is a king who's trying to do uh, the right thing. And you never get the sense that he's, you know, done something immoral, but he has stepped into uh, some areas and made some difficult uh, decisions. 
And there's a fascinating one where there's actually uh, an attempt to provoke a war between Atlantis and Wakanda. Uh, and uh, there's so many uh, moving parts in that particular story. Um, and there are some issues that don't work uh, quite as well. Uh, I think the tie-ins to maximum security. Uh, Everett Ross continues to be a really good uh, character, and there's actually a, a nice confrontation because in some ways it can almost feel like there is this sort of passive, aggressive uh, back and forth, particularly with Ross's sarcasm, uh, and like uh, T'Challa's not aware of it. But he's aware of it, and it's really dealt with in a in an interesting way in this book. Uh, probably my chief concern or complaint with the book is that there are so many uh, guest characters. You know, Christopher Priest is you know huge was a huge Marvel guy, and he you know wanted to bring in all of these uh, guest characters. Some of them seem to uh, have, have a very little relevance to the actual story. Triathlon spends a lot of time just kind of wandering around Wakanda in this and doesn't contribute a whole lot as far as I'm concerned. And even Storm, who, you know, I think makes a lot of sense in relationship with uh, T'Challa, uh, doesn't really justify the you know, role or even like she's given almost a title, um, made a title character in one plot arc. Um, as a guest star, she does not really contribute as much as uh, you would think given her overall status in the Marvel Universe. But still, I'm liking the stories at this point. So I definitely think it's worth uh, sticking with and I'll probably read uh, volume three. Uh, and then I also read the next volume in Tom King's Batman, Batman Volume uh, 8, A Cold Place. And you have three stories in this. Essentially, you have a three-parter where Bruce Wayne ends up on a jury where uh, Mr. Freeze is charged with uh, uh, killing three women based on some evidence that Batman was able to find that the coroner missed. And there was essentially a defense raise that Bruce uh, kind of finds persuasive so that he actually becomes the chief advocate for on the jury for acquitting Mr. Freeze. And the argument is that the reason that Batman found it and the coroner missed it is that someone came into the uh, morgue and made an alteration in the body to leave evidence that Mr. Freeze did it. And this whole thing becomes the basis for Bruce arguing for reasonable doubt. The truth is, that's actually not reasonable doubt at all. What has happened is that Bruce, because of his breakup with Selina, has lost confidence in Batman. And we really get to the heart of that matter in the third part of this story with a stupid scene where one of the jurors has a fold in her blouse and Bruce asked if 
she's wearing a cross. Now, it's a good thing for Bruce, it turns out. She is wearing a cross because his entire rant and his entire case is based on that and on his own rejection of religion after the death of his parents. And then taking it to the uh, conclusion and to the idea that Batman is viewed by a god as a god, but he is not a god, and that he can make mistakes, and that he has let them down, so at times, because he's human. And essentially, it comes to the argument of, uh, I am doubting Batman, and Batman is not god, Batman couldn't save my relationship, therefore we let to Mr. Freeze go. I mean, I think there is a point that King is going for because uh, there has been, uh, by many DC writers, a, a treatment of Batman as this sort of otherworldly figure. And I think in some ways King is trying to correct that. But I think the frame in which he does it is just horribly awkward and... I'm getting ranty here, but I'm going to keep it brief. I think making literal religious overtones arguments about Batman and uh, this whole case with Mr. Freeze is just so silly. And it doesn't work at all. And then we get a one-parter, which uh, highlights his relationship with Dick Grayson, who is Nightwing, you know, comes to Gotham to uh, patrol the city and to, uh, you know, cheer him up. And I actually enjoyed the overall interaction between them. It was fun, it was cute, and it it was uh, enjoyable. It continued on into Beast of Burden, which unfortunately has Nightwing getting shot and leads into Batman hunting down the uh, man who shot Nightwing, who is this Russian assassin. Batman follows the assassin's trail uh, back to his father's uh, cabin, where he's gone to see his dad. Uh, His dad asks why he... uh, kept him alive after he'd essentially killed the rest of the family. Uh, And he answered his dad that uh, he loved him, and his dad said, well, you're weak, but that's my fault. I love you too. And then the assassin killed his dad. And it's just one of those things. I mean, uh, you might as well have said... Uh, why uh, did you keep me alive, son? Oh, I was waiting for Tom King uh, to uh, write write the Batman's book. And then uh, once I was in that, then I'd go ahead and kill you and then kill him. It'd make just as much sense. And that's the real reason for it, is this sort of inclusion of this, this gratuitous material. And Batman meets up with the assassin. He beats the assassin. The assassin says, okay, I will give you the name of the person who hired me. My neck is uh, broken. I need help. You get me back. I'll tell you. And Batman says, you know, I'm world's greatest detective. I'll figure it out and you can get help yourself. Now, keep in mind that this guy was in the middle of the wilderness 
And essentially, Batman left this guy to die. And even with the worst criminal scum, which this guy is definitely in the cl- in that class, that's not something that Batman would do. That's just not who he is at his best as a character. And I think it's reflective of the sort of dark approach that Tom King's taking. Because the more I read Tom King's take on Batman, the more it feels like some sort of pretentious, edgy indie comic. And I think it's definitely turned sour for me since Volume 5, which I absolutely loved. And I think this is the point where I don't think it's going to get any better. Uh, He is leaving Batman after issue 85. I don't know if I will uh, read the next guy, but I'm pretty much done with Tom King's take on Batman. So it definitely earns a rating of not classy from me. Finally, we have Pet Avengers Classic. Now, I have purchased the Pet Avengers uh, book, starting with Lockjaw and the Pet Avengers, but before I get into reading those, I did want to check this out to get some details on some of these uh, characters' uh, appearances in uh, Marvel Comics. So this is a whole book of uh, appearances of animals and animal-like creatures in various Marvel comics. I don't know, not having read the Pet Avengers books, how many actually tie into the uh, Pet Avengers themselves and are stories with animals in them, and I suspect quite a few of the latter. Some of the selections for this book are kind of weird. They go with, you know, more modern stories. Like for Lockjaw, they went with a story from a fairly recent uh, Thing series rather than an older uh, story. Though Lockjaw's status as an animal or pet is a bit dubious, but I'll, I'll talk about that probably on another podcast. Uh, there were, uh, super apes, uh, in, uh, New Warriors number two from the early 2000s. I actually really liked. Uh, this book also has Squirrel, uh, Girl's first appearance, and of course, a lot of her squirrels in, uh, Marvel Superheroes number eight. Though that one has been reprinted elsewhere. Uh, and then there was a, uh, comic that was a, pre-Thor issue of Journey into Mystery, drawn by Jack Kirby, and in one of those sort of classic, you know, 50s, uh, early 60s sci-fi story with a twist, where a dog is just the key plot point. And I think that what may make this book interesting for some is there are a lot of rare reprints. You got some backup stories from annuals. Uh, but I think there are also a few stories it's a bit hit and miss. And some of them have been reprinted. Some of them aren't that great. I don't think there was anything that I just found like offensively stupid or anything. But the quality is mixed. And so I think this is a book where if you just want to read a story, you know, featuring animals and you just love any story featuring animals, uh, then this can be for you. Uh, otherwise, I, I think it's a really sort of marginal book. It's not nothing horrible, but I can't really give it a recommendation unless you 
you know, just really like, a, you know, any sort of animal story and would like to have a collection of them uh, because many of these have been reprinted elsewhere. Even though, as I said, there are a few rarities that haven't. All right, well, that will actually be all. I hope you like the new format. Uh, whether you like it or not, do se uh, send me an email to classycomicsguy at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And join us back here next week. Uh, next week, our classy showcase will be Doctor Who, The Age of Chaos, the only Doctor Who uh, comic story written by an actual Doctor Who actor. We'll talk about it next week along with Batman Detective Comics Volume 8 and Captain Marvel Masterworks Volume 5. In the meantime, from Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.